Well, grab your Bible, and if you will, take it and turn with me to Luke chapter 7. And as you're finding your place, just want to commend you on your singing this morning. Man, it felt like we had joy in our hearts, and we were singing to the Lord, and what a great time of worship we've experienced already just through the singing. Now we get to continue as we look at the Lord's Word. And so we're going to continue in our verse-by-verse journey through the Gospel of Luke. We've been in this gospel for a number of months now, and I'm just going to tell you right now, we're going to be in the gospel of Luke for a few more months or years, whichever one, I'm not sure. But uh, it's been a good time, and especially uh, the last few weeks as we've been in this seventh chapter and just looking at some various aspects, various windows of who Jesus is and how we should respond back to him. And this morning, I want to speak to this subject and, and just the issue of doubt and, and want us to see that Jesus is the answer in our doubt. He gives us an answer in our doubt. As we think about doubt, uh, it's something that we all deal with at, at some point and on some level. Doubt is that feeling of uncertainty. It's a, it's a lack of conviction. And as such, it is a fact of life. There will be some aspect of doubt in our experiences as we go through living in this world. There's going to be times when sometimes our doubt seems to be greater and the issues are greater and the ramifications are greater. Other times they're not going to be as, as great or as big of a deal. Sometimes the doubt we're dealing with or the situation is life-changing. Other times it's not so much. Uh, this past uh, weekend or this weekend, I should say, the past few days, I was uh, in a situation where I had a little bit of doubt. And if my Doubt actually came to fruition. It could have been a situation that was life-changing, but in that moment, it was insignificant. It was minuscule. It was very small, and yet there was this feeling of, of doubt that I was experiencing. And, and the situation was, is I was doing what a lot of guys are doing this time of year. I was hanging off the side of a tree and, and installing a tree stand. And in that moment, 20-something feet up in the air, harnessed in and all that, I, I began to wonder... Is this going to hold me? Which I probably should have considered that before I climbed that high up into the tree. But here I am standing on 20 feet of ladder that I've attached to this tree. And, and in that moment, I'm thinking, is it going to be able to hold my weight? I'm not as light as I used to be. Is it going to be able to hold my weight as I kind of hung onto the side of this tree? And the only reason I had that doubt was because a few weeks earlier, I was installing the same ladder, not the same ladder, but a ladder same brand, same model and all that. And as, as I installed it, it compromised and fell. And so now that was at five feet. Now I'm at 20 feet with a new ladder. And I began to wonder all of my weight, all 130 pounds of my weight <laughs> is on this ladder at 20 something feet. And if I fall, well, I didn't just go ahead and kiss Life as I've known it, goodbye. It's not going to be good for me. But, you know, in that moment, I, it was brief. It went by, and I just began to, to think through. No, I'm going to hold to my convictions that my equipment is going to hold up as it has always held up. But doubt is something that we deal with. You probably know a story in the Bible. It comes out from the book of Genesis, and a character's name, the man's name, is Joseph. And so when we say Joseph, there's several different Josephs in the Bible. But I want you to think about Joseph that we see in the story in the book of Genesis. 
Joseph was a man who probably had to reassure himself over and over and over again about God's plan for his life. You see, if you know the story of Joseph, in Genesis 37, Joseph is this young man who begins to have these dreams. At the age of 17, he begins to have these dreams, and all these things begin to take place in his life. And one of his dreams was was that his brother's sheaves, the grain that they were gathering, bowed down to his sheave. And so he shared that story with his dad, and he shared that story with his brothers. Well, he had another dream, and this dream was that the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowed down to him. And he shared that story with his family as well. And uh, his dad wondered about it and contemplated about it. His brothers resented him. They already hated him. Hated him because he was the favorite son of his father. But they hated him even more because he was audacious enough in this dream to think that they would bow down to him. So they concocted this plan and they decided we're going to kill this brother. He's, he's a nuisance. We're going to rid ourselves. We're going to get rid of this guy. We're going to make the world a better place by getting rid of this brother of ours. We're going to kill him. Reuben, one of the brothers, talked the brothers out of it, but when he wasn't there, they decided to sell him into slavery, and so Joseph found himself on his way to Egypt where he was sold to the captain of the guard into Potiphar's house as a slave. Well, he began to serve there, and he went on with life, tried to make the best of the moment, and began to excel, and was given more and more responsibility in Potiphar's house, and then he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and wound up in an Egyptian prison. The Bible tells us that God was still with Joseph and even there in that prison cell, even though he was being used by God and given more and more responsibilities, there came a day where two men who had been put in prison by the Pharaoh himself had dreams. And Joseph had an opportunity to interpret those dreams. One guy's dream was not so fair for him. He actually was killed, executed by the Pharaoh, the other man, the cupbearer, was restored to service in the Pharaoh's court. And Joseph told the guy, when you are restored to the Pharaoh, don't forget about me. But the Bible tells us two years went by and the cupbearer never remembered Joseph. And so you got to imagine, here's Joseph who had these dreams as a teenager. And ever since then, life has been anything but what he expected. Now he's interpreted these dreams. He's done some great stuff, and and this man's been restored, and surely he would be remembered, and yet he is not remembered at all. And so night after night after night, Joseph, you got to believe, begins to doubt about God's calling on his life. Begins to doubt about God's goodness in his life. He's beginning to think about, did I understand God rightly? Did I understand him correctly? Did I have the right perspective of who God is and what God wants to do with my life? And so over and over and over again, I believe Joseph had his seasons and his bouts with doubts. Until one day, Pharaoh has a dream of his own. And he can't get this dream out of his mind. In fact, he has a couple different dreams. And and so he's wondering about this. And the cupbearer hears about these dreams. And he says, Pharaoh, don't be alarmed. I know a guy who can interpret these dreams. And so they summon for Joseph. He comes from the the prison. The the Bible tells us he had to cut his hair and shave his beard and clean, clean his clothes. You can imagine what he smelled like. So you don't approach the Pharaoh like that. So he cleans himself up, comes before the Pharaoh, interprets these dreams, and says what you're seeing here in these dreams is that God is telling you there's going to be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And so, Pharaoh, here's what you need to do to get ready for the famine. He counsels the Pharaoh. Well, the 
Pharaoh puts him in charge of all of that. He's second in command of all of Egypt. And so everything that he had been told in these dreams as a young man, finally, 15, 20 years later, are coming to fruition. And he's elevated to this high position. So much so that when the famine hit that whole area of the world, his family comes down to Egypt and is sustained in God's providence. Joseph battled his season of doubt. And God was his answer in the midst of all of that. And so that begs a question for us this morning as we're looking at this passage in Luke chapter 7, as we think about Joseph, we think about our own lives. Here's a question that we need to wrestle with. Is doubt wrong or is it even sinful? Is it okay that we have seasons and moments in our lives where we're just not sure or is any inclination of doubt or wondering a sinful, evil thing that's going to be judged by Almighty God? That's the question that we need to consider. I think it's a question that we're going to be forced to consider as we look at this passage this morning in Luke chapter 7. Now, obviously, just on the front end, let me say this. Obviously, you would not want to think, or we would not think, that doubting the ability of something like a man-made ladder, like I was on Friday, doubting the security of that, or the, the, uh, the, 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 the makeup of that, the manufacturing of that ladder, is something that is sinful. We should probably question that sometimes. You ever been in a place where, uh, maybe in a room like this, or a person sits in a seat, and that seat gives way? Uh, church I served prior to coming here, we built a new campus. And so before we moved to this new campus, it was a regular thing when somebody would sit on a pew and that pew would break. And I mean, if you looked under the pews in our old worship center, you would see all sorts of two by fours underneath where people had sat and the, the, the seats had given out. So we would come back and support that. So the next person wouldn't fall through. We had a little weight loss program in our church during those days. Just kidding. And so when we question things like that, there's no issue there. But what about when we question the things that God has led us to do? What are, we, what are we to think about? How are we to feel when we question maybe the goodness of God or the grace of God or the fact that God is in control? Because many times in our life when things become difficult and the things that we think should be happening don't happen, we find ourselves wondering, did I miss God? Is God the way I think he is or the way I've read he is in the Bible, we begin to question and wonder about what's taking place. The stories that we experience and the stories that we read in Bible teach us that it's not so much about the doubt, but what we do with that doubt. That's what I want us to wrestle with this morning. Mark Littleton, I came across this quote this week. He suggested as believers, listen to this, turn your doubts to questions, turn your questions to prayers, and turn your prayers to God. So if we're going to answer that question, what do we do with our doubt? He's given us a good answer. Turn your doubts into questions. Ask the Lord. Turn those into prayers and bring it before the Lord. And so we see a beautiful picture of just that in the story of John the Baptist who sends two of his disciples to talk and to ask of Jesus, are you the Messiah or should we look for another? Luke chapter 7. Let's begin reading in verse 18. 
Luke tells us this. The disciples of John reported all of these things to him. What did they report to John? All of the things that we've already seen. That Jesus has done these miracles. That Jesus has done these wonderful things. That he's teaching and preaching and healing and ministering to people. John is being reported all of these things. And it says, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord. Saying, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And when the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I told you a few weeks ago that in Luke chapter 7, we see here five different scenes presenting five different windows by which we are to see Jesus. We also see in these five scenes, these five windows, how the people involved in the situations responded to Jesus. And so in that first scene, what we see is Jesus reacting to the faith of the centurion who believed on the Lord to heal his servant. And there we learn that faith is an exercise in reality as we rightly see who we are and we rightly juxtapose and rightly see that Christ is all that the Bible says he is. And in the second scene we looked at last Sunday, Jesus is moved with compassion towards that widow who's burying her only son. And Jesus is moved in that, and he comes up and in marvelous grace ministers to her. And then all the people who see that respond in awe to the graciousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. In this third scene, the people stand in awe, or I should say, the Lord receives a question from John the Baptist, who is in prison, and they're suffering with doubt. And the men John sent to Jesus see the Lord's miracles, and they go back and share that report with him. And what we see is that the miracles are the answer for the man's doubt. Now, what's going on here? Many of you, if you're Bible scholars, you probably already know that in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2, Matthew tells us that John is just not hanging out in a village somewhere. John is not on the Jordan River baptizing people at this point. John is in prison himself. John has been in prison. He's in this desert fortress, this dungeon called Machaerus. He's there because he dared to speak out against the sin of King Herod and the sin of his wife Herodias, who was married to King Herod's brother before. And so he's been put in prison because he dared to shoot straight with the king. He dared to preach against sin. He dared to, to deal with this issue. And so he's been put in this prison and everything that he's been expecting has yet to come to fruition. Now think about John and who John is. We dealt with John's life or his birth several uh, months ago as we began the gospel of Luke. John's entire life has been dedicated to God from birth. He had received prophetic visions. Think about that. Even in the womb of his mother, John, when, when, when Mary came to visit Elizabeth, John's mother, the Bible tells us that John leaps in her womb. Right there in the womb, he receives a prophetic vision that there is the Messiah in the womb of this woman coming into your presence. 
John's entire life has been dedicated to the things of God, the movement of God, the gospel of God. He has preached the coming of the kingdom. He's prepared Israel to receive the Messiah. He is even the one who baptized the Lord Jesus in the Jordan River. All of his life has been, in, has been spent in preparation for this moment. And yet John finds himself in prison because he dared to speak against the king and the king's actions. John experienced this season of doubt. From him, we learn that faith and doubt can find room in the same heart. Think about this. You can be a wonderful servant of God and yet still have moments and seasons of intense doubt. If we were to go back through church history, you, you would see that reverberating in story after story after story. As great men and women of God who were being used mightily by the Lord still had their moments and their seasons of wondering about how the Lord would direct things. Wondering maybe even about the goodness of God at times because the circumstances that they found themselves in were so harsh and so difficult that they wondered. And so this morning, if you struggle with doubt, I want you to know you're not alone. You're in good company. You're in the company of John the Baptist. I want you to know also that you're not necessarily broken, though all of us are broken by sin. I also want you to know that you're not necessarily wrong. We need to be careful how we look at doubt. Now, we don't want to go on living in doubt, but we also don't want to relegate it only to those who are, quote unquote, the unfaithful, those who do not possess faith. The reality is this. Sometimes Christians just need to say this to the Lord. Lord, I believe. Now, help me in my unbelief. I believe you, Lord, but there's at the same time, there's this struggle in my heart. There's this struggle in my spirit. Though I believe the Bible in its, in its word and what it says, it's hard for me to see that played out in action. Help my unbelief even as I faith into you. And so the reality is doubt is a fact of life. And thankfully, the Lord graciously provides an answer in that doubt. I'm gonna see, I want you to see this morning... In the next few minutes, four things that I believe are helpful for us in our season of doubt. Things that we see here in John the Baptist's experience. Here's the first thing I want you to see. Reality rarely meets expectations. Reality rarely meets expectations. Now, that's true in all facets of life. The last two Saturdays. Uh, those of us who are college football, football fans, we started the season off with incredible expectations, right? Our team's going to win the national championship there. We're going to be in the playoffs. We're going to win the national championship. That was the expectation. And then week one, Virginia Tech fans. Sorry, I had to go there. Old Dominion came. Virginia fans, we're going we're gonna to be better this year. And then you go to Illinois and you lose yesterday, right? Liberty, man, we're going we're gonna to do great. And you're on the ropes last night, and you finally pull it out there at the end of the game. I mean, we all have expectations. It doesn't matter what it is. We, we have expectations for our family, expectations for our children, expectations for our job, expectations in all facets of life. And rarely do those expectations become reality in the entirety, right? That's just a fact of life. So I doubt Joseph, think about Joseph's life. I doubt he ever expected to be a family outcast, a slave and a prisoner. Helping the rule 
to rule the Egyptian empire was definitely more of what he expected than what he experienced. He didn't get to experience that until the backside of all of those trials and heartaches and time spent in slavery and prison. Likewise, as John languished at Machaerus, he became increasingly perplexed by the reports he heard about Jesus' ministry. What do you mean he's perplexed about the reports of Jesus? Who would be perplexed by that? People are being healed, the blind are being given their sight, the deaf are being or the dead are being raised to new life. I mean, you've got people who are possessed by demons being freed from that demonic oppression. Who would be perplexed by that? John would. Why? Because he had a twofold prophecy about Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 3 that we looked at several months ago. What Luke or what John the Baptist preached about Jesus was that he would do incredible things and the work of the Holy Spirit would be imminent and would be powerfully upon him. And absolutely it was, but also the second aspect of that was that he would bring judgment against those who stood against God, that the kingdom of God would be ushered in. And as John here is in this prison cell, it does not look like that. Who's in control? Rome is still ruling the land. The spiritual elite in Jerusalem still are walking around self-righteous with their noses in the air, and they don't care anything about what Jesus is preaching, other than we got to get rid of this guy, right? They still seem to be firmly in control of everything. On top of that, the pawns of Rome, like Herod and Herodias and others, are living in comfort they are just living off the, 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 the indulgences that they're getting from the people of Israel, God's people. Uh, they're they're a, a prostitute to their own people. I mean, they're just they're horrible, horrible individuals. And yet there's no justice being done in their lives or for their sin. All, in all of that, where's John? John, the faithful preacher. John, the man who's dedicated his life. John, the man who's walked cleanly and, and righteously before the Lord. And next Sunday, we'll get into what Jesus says about John and about how he's lived his life and about how he served God. Where is John in the midst of all this? He's rotting in a prison. Soon to lose his head. Right? Mark 6 tells us that it wasn't long after this that Herodias acted or asked for John's head, and they brought it to her on a silver platter. That's where John finds himself. That's the reality he is living in, and it did not meet his expectations. And so this morning, when your expectations do not match your reality, I want you to realize, I want you to understand and remember that you often will be tempted to doubt God's direction and doubt God's provision. This is where John is. Are you the Messiah? Or should we look for another? So we need to recognize this tendency and work to move from doubt to faith. And that leads us to a second helpful thing, thing to consider in our season of doubt. Secondly, discipleship is no easy path. Discipleship is no easy path. God has never promised that life as a Christian would be easy in this fallen world. In fact, he promised the very opposite of that. Jesus said in John 15, verses 18 and 19, If the world hates you, hey, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so we should never even entertain the idea that because I serve the king of kings, 
The, the master of all, as we saw in small group this morning, the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, because we serve the King of kings, that life in this world is going to be easy. It will never be easy until this life is over and the new heavens and the new earth are ushered in. You see, this past week, several Christians were arrested in a very unreached and thus dangerous part of the Middle East. Four of those Christians arrested in this place that I don't know the location Four of those Christians arrested are new believers who are just about to be baptized. Now, I don't know the situation. I don't know the details of all of that, but it could be. It's very plausible that the fact that they were arrested was because they were about to baptize. You Think about those young Christians. Did they sign up for that? More than likely. Because in that world, they believe there's no, no such thing as easy believism. They understand that when I come to Christ and I give my life to Christ, I literally could lose my life at any moment. They understand the cost of discipleship. We this morning need to understand and remember that discipleship is not an easy path to follow. And so for John as a purveyor of truth, he understood the risk he took every time he preached. Think about it. You dare not speak against the evils of culture and the sins of the leaders without expecting some kind of backlash. So as John wasted away in Machaerus, he needed to be reminded that a commitment to following Jesus in this world does not come with the promise of an easy life. And likewise, we need to be reminded that living for Jesus and following his direction does not guarantee our easy path. It doesn't guarantee that we're going to have just rosy, easy Main street type living all of our days. There may be seasons of that, but there also may be very difficult struggles along the way. In fact, in many, if not most cases of your life, if you're living for Jesus, it's going to be harder than those who are in rebellion against Christ. But even in that, think about this. The Lord is gracious. Leads us to a third thing that I want to point out. Inquiries are welcome. So in my doubt, in my struggle to understand, in my un working to understand what's happening and why it's happening, we see here in John's story that inquiries, asking questions, are welcome. All throughout Scripture we see this. We see believers asking God why. I mean, think about it. Job struggled with that for chapter after chapter after chapter in the book of Job. He's wanting to know why. Everybody's telling him he's got sin. He's like, no, I don't have sin. I have no known sin in my life that I've not confessed that would warrant what I'm experiencing. So God, if you could just tell me why this is happening, I could sleep better tonight. We see that in the story of Job. We see it in the story of Joseph. Here's a man that God gave these visions to, and he didn't do anything. Well, he, maybe we could say that he had this coat of many colors that he probably wore in front of his brothers a lot. Look at me, I'm the favored son. Maybe that was one aspect of his teenage years that wasn't so good. But does that mean you kill the guy? Does that mean you sell him into slavery? Does that mean he should be falsely accused and put in prison? Does that mean he should be forgotten when he interprets a dream and helps a guy out? No. Joseph surely wondered why. King David is the anointed king. He's going to succeed the, uh, the current king, King Saul, and yet he's on run for his life day after day after day. Why? Because he dared to follow God, and God anointed him as the next king. Psalms are littered with David's doubt and faith 
right there simultaneously in the text. God, when are you going to help me? God, how are you going to help me? God, I know you're going to help me. It's all in there in the same psalm over and over and over again. Inquiries are welcome. And so it's important here to know that Jesus does not rebuke John for asking the question. Does not rebuke him for his doubt. Does not rebuke him for sending these messengers to ask, are you the Messiah? Today, in your doubt, I want you to know Jesus is not rebuking you. Jesus is not fussing at you. He's not treating you as a second-class citizen of the kingdom. You see, as we said earlier, doubt and faith both often reside in the human heart. We can and we should bring our questions. We should bring our confusions to the Lord, the situations that we're struggling with. And we need to lay them there at the feet of the cross and find our answer in Jesus Christ. Here's what we know about Jesus. He's big enough to handle our questions. And he's good enough and gracious enough to not resent us for asking them. Did you hear what I just said? I think sometimes as Christians, we are scared to ask the Lord a question because we think that's not faith. And yet David and Joseph and all these people we read about in the Bible struggle with the very same thing that we struggle with. John the Baptist. He's like Jesus' cousin, right? He leaps in the womb and he's having this moment wondering, is Jesus really the Messiah? Or have I just spent 30 years of my life pointing to the wrong guy? Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Fourth thing I want you to see quickly this morning. Evidence is evidence. So we ask our questions, we direct those to the Lord, and we're asking him, Lord, as I ask this question, direct my eyes to where they need to be. And what we see here is that evidence is evident. As John the Baptist is asking his question, Jesus assures him with evidence. And he does it in a profound way. Now, we would think, as I'm reading through this, maybe this is the way I think, they ask the question, are you the Messiah or should we look to another? I would expect Jesus to go on a theological treatise and say, this this is the reason, and just kind of lay out all of these scriptural reasons why he's the Messiah. That's not what Jesus does. Notice in the text, it says, in that very hour... He did all of these things. He heals the blind. He raises the dead. He casts out demons. Uh, He he does all of these different things, proving with evidence that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. And so in doing this, Jesus produced a rite of healing. It, It led to unrestrained joy there in that area. Restored eyes were seen for the very first time, the blue Palestinian sky. And you can you imagine never having seen before, at least never having seen in a long time, the joy that erupts when you see the beauty of the sky. Faces of family members that they've not seen in years or ever. The healed and the loved ones are crying out in joy. Newly restored minds are engaging in, nor- engaging in noisy worship. And so these messengers sent from John are witnessing these miracles and the joy that they're generating. And they take that message back to John and they say, John, I know you're doubting in this moment, but we've seen the evidence. And it's evident. Everything that Jesus has said about himself, everything, John, that you've said about Jesus is true. How do we know that? The deaf can hear, the blind can see, the dead are raised, the demon-possessed are free. The kingdom is being preached. The poor are being helped. Jesus is real. Be encouraged. 
And so Jesus sends these disciples back with overwhelming empirical and scriptural evidence. Empirical in the sense that you see this stuff happening. Scriptural in the sense that everything that Jesus has done backs up everything that scripture said would be done about the Messiah or by the Messiah. And so he goes back with this, this, this plethora of evidence on behalf of Jesus Christ to encourage this languishing, doubting prophet. Reminds us that the same can be true in our own situations. You see, when we're doubting, we need to open our eyes and we need to see the way God has worked. We need to see God stepping into our struggles. We need to open our eyes and open our Bibles and read the pages of Scripture. And not just read them mundanely, but read them and say, this is exactly what's happening in my life. And see that God is a faithful and good and gracious God who works then just like he works now. And he works now just like he worked then. What does that mean for us? That means I can trust him today. You see, I've been and you've been in those moments where John the Baptist is finding himself. God, are you really the one that's going to pull me out of this? God, are you the really, really the one that's, that's, you know, I'm on your path. You've led me down this and it's not what I expect. It's not what I want. And so help me in this. I want to believe you. I want to trust you. I, I do believe you. But at the same time, I don't believe you because I'm just unsure in all this. And, and, and so what do you do in that? First, you need to look at the Bible. And you see how God's worked in the past so you know how you can trust him today and tomorrow. And also you look back in your own life as a follower of Jesus. And you've probably been in similar situations. Maybe not to the extent that you find yourself in today. But you've seen yourself in that situation on a lesser scale in other times. And in that moment, if you could step back to those moments, you felt the same way. God, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to take this step. I don't even know where to move. Uh, it's not what I expect. It's not like I want. God, I'm trying to follow you. I'm trying to believe you. I do believe you, but I don't believe you. God, help me. And he's faithful to move with you and to help you along. And then you find yourself in another place of doubt. And what do you do? You step back and you grab old you and bring him up to the current you and say, God was faithful then. Then God will be faithful now. Jesus is the answer in your doubt. Jesus is the answer in your doubt. Look at verse 23. As we close this morning, Jesus says this, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The Lord here is offering encouragement to John, basically saying this, we put it in today's vernacular. John, you and others like you, you're going to be blessed if you do not fall away because of the disappointment and the way I choose to guide your life. John, you need to remember that I'm the Lord of heaven. John, you need to remember that I'm all wise. John, you need to remember that I'm all good. John, you need to remember that I've got your best at heart. And not just your best for today, but I'm looking way down the road, right? I'm not short-sighted like you, John. I know the end from the beginning and everything in the middle. And so, John, if you and everyone else who reads your story and experiences the same thing you experience, if you will look at me and believe me and trust me and walk with me, John, you will be blessed. But, John, if you get offended... Because I don't do things the way you want them done or the ways you think they should be done. John, you're going to be disappointed. 
And John, you're not going to get to experience all that I have for you. You see, we're puzzled and we feel disappointment at times by what the Lord allows and sometimes even brings into our lives, right? Aren't you disappointed at times? The way your life trajectory works out? Sometimes people, because of their offense, will run off the rails of faith when tragedy hits them. They will absolutely turn their backs upon Jesus. They will absolutely walk away from the faith. Others will choose not to believe in a God who oversees a world that's filled with injustices and evil. And I can understand some of that. But at the same time, I also understand the greater portion of Scripture. Jesus says you always have the poor with us. And so the fact that we have poor today, the fact that we have evil in the world today, is not a mark against God. It's a mark against us. God is working in the midst of all of that. The graciousness of God keeps him from just wiping out all evil, which means what do you have to do to wipe out all evil? Humanity. You ever read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? When Lot went to that city, those two cities, and, and the immorality there, the sexual immorality that was there, and the fact that they had been rejecting God over and over and over again. And so finally, God in his wrath had exhausted his grace for them. And at that point, it's over. They were crispy critters. And so if God was to eliminate all evil in this world, he has to do one of two things. Annihilate humanity. I shouldn't say annihilate. Throw all of humanity into the lake of fire because there's no such thing as annihilation. We have the divine side of God in us. We will exist in one of two places. He could do that or he could just say, sin's no big deal. I'm going to cancel it all out. And that raises a whole other theological issue that we don't have time to go into. And I would make the argument God's not good in doing that, which further is evil and Now our heads are spinning. It's all messed up. So if God in his grace is going to deal with humanity and his sin, how does he best do that? Through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we faith into him and what he did on the cross, as Trevor said earlier, as we sing earlier about, God gives us everything we need in the midst of our doubt and depression and ultimately sin. This morning we can take courage in that. This morning we can uh, be... Um, blessed in that, knowing that Jesus has stepped in. Three things I want to leave you with, and I, I want to make sure I say these. It's okay to experience moments of doubt. It's okay to ask questions. But in those moments, there's three things that I really believe would serve us well if we'll do these. And so they're not on your sheet, but if you want to jot these down, they're very simple. Number one, doubt your doubts. It's good to ask questions. It's fine to ask questions. But never raise your questions and your doubt to the level of this right here. Never raise your experience to the level of this right here. Or even the experience of someone else. So doubt your doubts. Ask the questions. That's fine. But have a a, a sense of doubt even of your doubts. And in that, you move to the second thing, seek out evidence. We saw here that there's evidence on the table. Jesus gives evidence of the fact that he is truly the Messiah. And so as we're doubting, we're doubting our doubts. And in that doubt, we're seeking evidence. Where is God? Where is the truth of God? We know the Bible says he is true. How can I know that for certain? So we're seeking the truth. We're seeking the evidence. And then thirdly, what do you do? You stand on that. Sometimes that's all you have. 
So you just got to say, I don't know, I can't make sense of it, but this is what the Bible says. I'm going to stand right here. I think that's where John the Baptist was. He never wavered after this moment. From what the Gospels tell us about him, he never wavered. But in this season, he's wavering. Lord Jesus, are you the Messiah or should we look for another? Jesus sends back with the messengers evidence the fact he, he is the Messiah. And so not too long later, he's standing there and he never wavers as he's led out to the guillotine. And the head of John the Baptist is severed and brought into that wicked Herodias as a prize. So we need to doubt our doubts, seek evidence, and stand on that evidence. And so we turn our doubts to questions. We turn our questions to prayers. We turn our prayers to God as we stand on that evidence of God's activity. As we see it in the Bible, as we look back in our own lives, because this is what we know of God. He is faithful. He is good. He is gracious. He is supreme. He is sovereign. And we know that even though he's all of those things, we as his children won't always experience the easiest of lives. And yet God is already walking with us, and he's at the end waiting on us as well. This morning, if you're doubting, know that you can trust the Lord. And I want to encourage you to run to him and run to him only. This morning, some of you need to run to, to the Lord because that's, you've never run to him to begin with. As a Christian, it should make sense to run to the Lord. But those of you who are not in relationship with Jesus, and, and I'm making a distinction there. I'm not saying in, in religion with Jesus. I'm not talking about church attendance. I'm not talking about uh, I read my Bible. I'm not talking about I was baptized. I'm not talking about any of those things. But those of you who are in relationship with Jesus, that you have understood your sinfulness, and you've turned from sin to Christ, you know the goodness and the grace and the security of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Some of you may not know that. Some of you watching online. And today you can know that. We have a time of response every single Sunday. And this is an opportunity for believers to respond in faith. An opportunity to respond in repentance. It's also an opportunity for those who have never yet faith into Jesus. To say, you know what? Lord, you're speaking to my heart. And I understand my sinfulness. And I want to repent of my sin. Turn to you in faith. And trust you as my Lord. And my Savior. So I want to invite you. Let's just stand to our feet. Trevor's going to come and play. We're going to sing a song. And as we do every Sunday morning, in faith, we're going to respond to the Lord and to the Lord's word. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful today to serve a good God. And Lord, in this world that is full of evil, there's times when we may wonder... How good or for sure how strong you are. In fact, on today, the 21st anniversary of 9-11, many people, I'm sure, 21 years ago, were wondering, where was God? How could a good God allow this to happen? How could terrorism strike the homeland of our nation? Those things happen over there. It doesn't happen here. You see images of people jumping out of the Twin Towers to their death. Preferring to fall a hundred stories rather than being vanquished in the hot flames. God, even in all of that, we know you're good. And yet we struggle with doubt. Lord, this morning there 
Surely there are people in this room listening to us online who are struggling. Life has not been easy to them. Cancer diagnosis, marital issues, financial struggles, wayward children, friendships falling apart, job loss, didn't get the promotion. God, we could go on and on and on and just list the various things that we deal with often in our lives. And we wonder sometimes, where is God? The truth is, you're right there. Help us to remember that. We thank you that you are an ever-present help in times of trouble. And God, we also know, as we laid out the gospel just a few minutes ago, that the greatest trouble we're in is all due to sin. It's a separation that we are under, the curse that we are under because of our sin. And so, God, I pray for those in this room and watching us who have never put their faith and trust in Jesus. God, that they would do that. God, help them to make that decision. This is a time for response. Help us to do that, Lord. May your Holy Spirit lead us and guide us. Lord, may our yes be on the table to whatever it is you're putting before our eyes. We pray in Jesus' name.